Very good singing. Let's take our Bibles now and open up to the book of Revelation. Does everyone have this handout paper? As you came in, did you get one of these? Yes? We're good? Okay. You can use the hardback board in the pew in front of you to use as your uh, backing to write on. Make sure you don't use a Bible or a hymn book. Use the board. That's what it's there for. We're going to go to Revelation. And uh, let's go to chapter 1. This paper here that I've, I've given you, there's space for you to fill in some notes. And I'll be putting those notes up here on the screen behind me, and you'll be able to copy them down. But um, uh, this is um, sort of the fruit of months and months and months of pouring over Revelation. Um, every day, every day, every day, chapter after chapter. Went through the book, go through the book again. Got through it, went through it again. Start making notes, starting putting them all together. So I'm giving you a little bit of a, uh, a fresh perspective here on Revelation. It can be a confusing book as you go through it. And the reason for that is because not only do you have uh, the real-time events, but you also have commentary being given almost alongside it or in a zigzag pattern. And so once you see that, it clears up a lot of the mystery. Let's pray and then let's get right in here, shall we? Loving Father, now we ask that you would help us to understand this book. It's an open book. It's called Revelation, a revealing. And so, Lord, help us, please, to, to consume the book and to take it into our heart and soul and spirit. There's a marvelous blessing for all believers who will do this. Help us to be some of those believers. And Lord, we pray that you would indeed increase our faith, our love, our desire for you. And we'll give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, um, the paper here uh, shows the book being divided into three parts. Thank you very much. Now, in, um, in amongst the theologians, they love to talk eschatology, which means the study of the last things. And they like to talk about the uh, pre-tribulational uh, view, the mid-tribulational view, the post-tribulational view sort of thing. And so with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, I've given you three main, main, main headings, pre-tribulation, tribulation, and post-tribulation. So the pre-tribulation means the things that happen before the tribulation. And the tribulation, what happens during the tribulation. And post-tribulation, what happens after the tribulation. You see, you can fill those blanks in right now. And so at the top of your page, you will note that on the left, there say, it says chapter and under it, it says commentary. So there are certain chapters that give commentary. We could call it a, a number of things, a parentheses. We could, we could say that we're pulling the bus over and we're having a little chat or something. And then you have the chapter that gives you real time, blow by blow, uh, what's going to be happening. And then there's some descriptive notes. That's for you to fill in. I'll give them to you up here. But uh, we'll go through this together. And I think you'll find that it'll clear up a bunch of mysteries. My plan is that after tonight, when we start into chapter four, uh, we can breeze through these chapters using this little uh, map, if you will, to guide us along. We can go to any portion, any passage, any chapter, and we'll know where we're at. 
And so what I'd like to suggest is that you, you keep that paper tucked in your Bible so you don't forget it next Wednesday when you come. And modern technology, these things are very handy. They can fold and fit into just about any size. So I just want to encourage you to uh, keep that paper there in your Bible. All right. Pre-tribulation. What happens before the tribulation? So you'll notice on the, um, uh, the left, I've put the, uh, the chapter and the, uh, I've put them under commentary. Um, notice also something, please, that some of the chapters are put in red. Do you see that? Most of them are in black, but uh, some of them are in red. And um, the red ones basically uh, are all about the seven-year tribulation. So that's why I put them in red to make them stand out a little bit. Now, chapter one, we have essentially, is this thing working? There we are. There we go. In chapter one, we have the vision of Jesus, this grand, majestic, um, unseen, uh, unseen bef- uh, before this time, uh, never seen before. This vision of Jesus, we have the seven churches mentioned in Asia. And then we have the purpose of the book of Revelation, which is in verse 19 and 20. Uh, Verse 19, in essence, gives us the key for understanding the uh, book of, um, of Revelation. Write the things which thou hast seen, that's past, the things which are, present tense, and the things which shall be hereafter. It continues on when he says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. And then he explains what they are. And so you have sort of three things. So uh, if you will, you can make a little note in your upper right-hand corner of the page that you've got some blank space there. You can put chapter one is the past. It's what John saw. Chapter 2 and 3 is the present. It's what we see. Those seven letters to the seven churches, this church is just like them today. So it's present tense. It's what we see. And chapters 4 to 22 is the future. It's what they shall see. Particularly those that go through the tribulation. We who are saved will be spared from that. I know there's a lot of people that don't believe it. And some people believe it not for any theological reason, just because they don't like it. Well, if others had to suffer, what makes us think that we're exempt? And for that reason, they think that we'll be going through the tribulation. Well, you know, God bless them. I I disagree. And I think that God has got a definite purpose in mind with uh, what he's doing now and his promise to keep us from the the time of temptation that will come upon the earth. So um, here we have then a simple chapter, chapter one, and it's all what happens before the tribulation. We have this fantastic vision of Jesus. We're introduced to the seven churches here, and then um, we have the purpose of the book of Revelation. Now we get into chapters two and three, and here we have the seven letters. Now, we've looked at all seven letters. Understand, please, that the book of Revelation 
was given as one book, and it was given to each church. Each church got it, made a copy of it, and passed it along to the next. So the very first church, the church at Ephesus, they got the entire book of Revelation. They would have made a painstaking, careful hand copy of it, and then they would have passed it on to the, to the next church and all seven churches. So they all had special letters to them, which we've looked at. We're not going to take the, the time per se to look at it. But in those letters, Jesus talks of good works. That's one thing that comes out very powerful in all those seven letters is the good works and repentance. Uh, all but two of those churches had things that they needed to repent of. And so there's a good message for us that God is interested in good works in each and every one of us. We have been saved unto good works. So make sure that there are as many good works for the Lord in your life as you possibly can. And um, then we get to chapter 4 and 5, and we have a vision of heaven. We have God on the throne. We have something called the four beasts, which we find um, is the very same as the seraphim, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, these seraphim with their six wings. And so um, we have the 24 elders. We spoke about them and who they could uh, refer to. I believe they're referring to people, not to angelic beings. And remember, we spoke of um, the crowns. Now, we, we dealt with this on Sunday. Uh, we went through the 11 verses of uh, Revelation chapter 4 on Sunday morning when we talked about consecrating ourselves and having the crowns. And I happen to have one of those crowns right here. Remember this? Have you, have you cut out your crown? Have you made it into a crown? Are you using it as a bookmark? Are you using it as a reminder that everything you have, your whole life and everything needs to be laid lovingly at the Lord's feet? So that was, that was fun to look at that on Sunday morning. But we have these, um, these, these different things in chapter 4. And all this, uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's all a prelude to the tribulation. We have also, um, I didn't put it up here. You can write it on your paper. But we have um, the Lamb, which is Jesus. And we have the seven-sealed book the book with the seven seals on it. Now, I'm, I'm not giving you all of the detail in every chapter. I'm just giving you a few of the highlights. But everything here is happening before the seven-year tribulation begins. So far, so good. Any question? Anyone miss anything? Are we good? Okay. So uh, notice also that after chapter 4, you don't have any more mention of the church on, um, on earth there. It's, uh, it's been raptured. We have that sort of pictured in verse 1. John hearing this voice, which uh, it, it, as it were of a trumpet, talking with me, which said, come up hither. And it's sort of a picture, if you will, of the uh, rapture uh, that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The rapture was a mystery up until the time when Jesus revealed it to Paul. Paul revealed it in his letters. Prior to that, the rapture is not known. It's not in 
the Gospel of Matthew 24 and 25 have nothing to do with the, the rapture at all. It has to do with the tribulation. We'll get into that. All right, we'll make that part of our study as we study Revelation. But what you have now is the pre-tribulation. All the things that are happening prior to the tribulation. So now we're ready for the tribulation to begin. Let the tribulation begin. And that's where we come to chapter 6. Here we go. In chapter 6, uh, we, we are into real time. You know, tung, 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 one after the other. And what we've got is the seven-sealed book. And what it is, is a quick overview, if you will, of the tribulation. It seems to be a thumbnail sketch. There are these uh, seven seals. We'll be looking more in detail at these things in later weeks as we get into the actual chapter and verse. But I'm just giving you the overview for now. And you, you can see in chapter 6, if your Bible is open in Revelation chapter 6, uh, the first seal is open. The Lord Jesus opens the first seal in verse 1. And there comes a white horse. And we believe that's speaking of the Antichrist. And then verse 3, he opens the second seal. And there comes a, a red um, horse. And that talks about war. And uh, then we get into the third and fourth and fifth. And the sixth. Now the seventh is not dealt with here. Six of the, the seven um, seals are dealt with. And then the Lord Jesus who is dictating all of this. He takes a pause from the real time. He takes a pause and gives us some commentary. On in a very important aspect. And that's in chapter 7. We have the 144,000. And so that's mentioned here uh, in verse 4. I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. You'll notice it as it says nothing about the Jehovah's Witnesses here. Nothing at all. The Jehovah's Witnesses take that number and they apply it to themselves. They used to believe that only 144,000 would be the only ones that would be saved. Uh, just true J-dubs, 144,000 of them. But as the cult grew, their numbers grew beyond 144,000. So they had to change the meaning of it. And so they've been changing things a bit. And today they still believe in 144,000, but they believe that these are special chosen ones and that they're not being chosen anymore. They've already been chosen. And these ones uh, have special uh, privilege with God. They'll be ruling over the rest in heaven. And when they have their great big mass rallies where they'll have 5,000, 10,000 J-dubs together, they'll have communion. And they take the trays and they just pass them along. No one takes communion except maybe some of the very, very, very oldest J-dubs who believe that they're one of the 144,000 and they'll take something out of the tray. Otherwise, no one else touches it. Imagine having communion like that. It's all just passed right down the road like that. Crazy. Well, anyhow... We're told here who they are. They're Jews, and there's 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes here. Um, we're also told about a great multitude, and um, we see that here in verse 9 of chapter 7. Tremendous great multitude, no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people 
and tongues. They stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. So it gives a picture of the idea of them in heaven. It seems that the 144,000 may be, um, and then there's some question here. There's some elbow room. Are the 144,000 chosen and sealed at the beginning or near the end? And uh, I've been bantering this thing all over the place for years. I kind of think they're at the beginning because I think God uses them as evangelists throughout all the world. And that's how we have this multitude that no man could number in verse nine. It's because of the faithful witness of the, the Jews. Jews are located all over the world today. Have you noticed that? They're all over the world. Now they have there's a couple of places where they're in large concentration, Israel, uh, Miami, <laughs> a couple of places where there's large concentrations of them. But essentially there's, there's Jewish people all over the world. And I think that God takes advantage of this and God is going to use them in during the tribulation. They'll get saved and then they'll help others get saved. I think that's what we've got here. Now we get back to the real time and we're in chapters eight and nine. And here we have the seventh seal. Remember that there was a book with seven seals and, um, in chapter 6, there were six of the seals given. Now, we get to chapter 8 and verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal. So this gives us uh, another clue as to why chapter 7 is a bit of a commentary off to one side. But as far as real time, if you want to just stay right in step, marching order with what's happening in the tribulation. You start in chapter 6, you go to chapter 8 and 9. And so we have the seventh seal and the seventh seal when he opens it is the seven trumpets. Now there's only six of them dealt with here. Not all seven are dealt with. Six of the seven trumpets are given. And uh, these things, it seems that um, with the seals, each one seems more horrific. And then the last seal becomes the trumpets and the trumpets open up a whole new dimension of horror upon earth. These things tend to start mild and get more severe and more severe and more severe still. And in a way, it's something like how God deals with men in general. And he'll deal this way with his children, you and I. He'll try to reason with us. And when we won't listen, he'll bring in the small hammers and tap us on the head. And when we still stubborn ourselves and stiffen our necks, he'll bring in the big hammers and kabong, kabong. And before you know it, things are really falling apart in our lives. Unfortunately, that, that story has repeated itself so many times. It's innumerable how many times that story has repeated itself in the lives of God's people. God's people. They're saved, but they just got a stubborn streak like a rebellious child. And so God has to use a little more sterner and sterner methods. I think this is sort of what happened in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> that was a, an ultimate kabong on the head, wasn't it? God killed them and took them home. And God reserves that right to do that with any of us if we get out of line. Me too. It makes no difference if you're a regular Christian or if you're a, a pastor for 40 years. It makes, it makes little difference. In fact, I'm of the persuasion that God tends to deal harder with the pastors than he does with the people. 
That's my belief from uh, observation and from scripture. Well, these, as I put up on the board here, they are attention-getting devices. They are to get the attention of the world's people. And as, as you read through these things and find that the world stiffens itself and they, they do not repent of their sorceries and adulteries and their fornications and their thefts and so on, and they even start to blaspheme the name of God. But God is still loving and not willing that any should go to, go to hell, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And one day, when they stand before him to be judged at the great white throne, all these things will be used in evidence against them for having rejected the Lord. And now, he takes a break again. And now, on the left, we've got commentary. Chapters 10 and, cha- and about half of chapter 11. Let me just take takes a look there. Chapter 11. Yeah, just about half. Well, till verse 13, anyhow. And so here we have the little book and we have the two witnesses. There's a lot of discussion as to what that little book could be. Some people have different ideas. Uh, we are not specifically told what it is. However, um, I have a thought for you. It's only a thought. But um, uh, back in the days of Ezekiel, Ezekiel was also told to take this roll of a book and eat it. And then he was to go and to prophesy and to preach to the people. And so here we have this angel coming down with a little book in his hand, verse 2, chapter 10. And uh, then a voice tells John in verse 8 to go and take the little book, which is in the hand of the angel. Verse 9, he goes to the angel and says, give me the little book. Angel says, take it and eat it up. It shall make thy belly bitter, but in thy mouth it shall sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And then very next words, And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now, again, there's room for disagreement here. Perhaps the little book is a reference to the book of Revelation. And how the Bible has been spread around the world and people read Revelation. It's possible. It could be a, another book. Uh, it might be um, uh, the, uh, the book of Daniel or something like that. But here's another thought. And again, I'm not saying it's right, but it's just a possibility. The very next chapter, there are two witnesses going to come on the earth. And they'll come at the beginning of the seven years And they'll be preaching and prophesying for three and a half years to the midway point. Then Antichrist will kill them. The dead bodies will lay in the streets for three days, three and a half days. And then the spirit of life will come into them. They'll jump up on their feet and they'll take off to heaven. So that's in chapter 11. John was supposed to preach again to many people. Is it possible that John could be one of the two witnesses? The thing is, we don't know who those witnesses are. We're not told. There's a lot of people feel it could be Moses and Elijah. Some people feel it's Enoch because Enoch never had a physical death. And Elijah, Elijah never had a physical death either. 
Some feel that it's going to be Moses because they think that he would be the perfect one to do it, being the lawgiver and so on. Well, in it's all speculation is what it is. But in chapter 11, we have these two witnesses and they, um, they have power in verse 6 to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Watch this now and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with, with all plagues as often as they will. And for those first three and a half years, there will be some catastrophes happen on earth. And my guess is because Satan is trying to wipe out all the Jews, he will use this as a reason uh, why the world needs to get rid of the Jews. It'll be a perfect reason, I think, in the mind of Antichrist. Antichrist is going to be killed and brought back to life right at that midway point, And then he's the one who's going to overcome the two prophets because no one else could. He'll have them put to death. And then uh, people will uh, be rejoicing. The unsaved people will anyhow. And then Antichrist will defile the temple and he'll start persecuting the Jews. The point of trying to get rid of them, to kill them all. And I think this is what's in the plan of Satan, is to get rid of the Jews. Why does Satan want to get rid of the Jews? God made a promise and he used himself as the guarantee uh, or the guarantor of that, that promise that uh, there'd always be Jews that he, he would uh, see to it that that nation would not be annihilated, that, that there would always be a Jewish nation. So if Satan can get rid of the Jews, then he's broken God's promise. And that promise is backed up by God himself, meaning that Satan would have overcome God. So in a nutshell, that's my take on it. Now, we need to move on. So we get now back into real time. And we pick up in chapter 11 and verse 14 with the words, the second woe is past. I guess I'll just try and point it out to you here. Um, if you go back to chapter 9, we've got um, verse 1 is the first woe. Uh, see, prior to that in chapter 8, verse 13, woe, woe, woe. There's three woes coming upon the, uh, the earth. And the first woe is the fifth trumpet in chapter 9, verse 1. And this is where um, um, this angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is uh, Abaddon, uh, or in Greek, Apollyon, that's over in verse 11. He uh, heads up this horrific army of, of horrible things, worse than anything Hollywood could ever come up with. And these things come and they torment men. Uh, and they, they inflict a pain upon them for five months, which is a strange amount of time. I haven't figured out why the five months, but that's what it is. And they're hideous, horrible looking things according to their description. That's the first woe. The second woe comes in verse 13. The sixth angel sounded. And here's the second woe. And um, we've got now some other horrible creatures. And there's 200 million of them that are coming. And uh, they sure don't look human. I'll tell you this. Looking at their description in verse 17. They've got um, um, ho uh, horrible uh, uh, descriptions and heads of lions and out of their mouth comes three things, fire, smoke, and brimstone, verse 18. And by these three was a third, was the third part of men killed. The third part of the population at that time in the tribulation is killed. Meanwhile, 
I think you've got the two witnesses doing all their miracles and preaching. All the more reason, I think, to put the attention, put the blame on the Jews. And so then finally we get now to uh, chapter 11, verse 14. The second woe is past. And behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And so we, we have the final warning of the end. This is the seventh trumpet. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded. Here's the seventh trumpet. And it is a final warning of the end. Um, then we have uh, something incredible happen in verse 19. The temple of God was opened in heaven. And we're going to pick that up in just a moment when we go to chapter 15. But uh, here in chapter um, 12 now, 12 to chapter 15, verse 4, this is commentary. And we're told about Israel and how Jesus was born and his ascension into heaven. And the last half of the tribulation is dealt with. Now, uh, if you look at chapter 12 for a moment, so don't worry, I'll give you enough time to write everything down, not to worry, but look at chapter 12. <clears throat> we have a description of Israel in verse 5, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Well, that's Jesus. That's what it says in uh, Psalm 2, verse 9. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So his 33 and a half years gone by. His ministry, his death, burial, and now his resurrection, but his ascension is mentioned here. So between verse 5 and verse 6, you see that tiny little bit of space between verse 5 and verse 6? Do you see that in your Bible? That tiny, tiny little line of space? That's the entire church age right there, 2,000 years. Right there in that little bit of emptiness. Because it says the woman fled into the wilderness. Now we're, half, we're halfway into the uh, tribulation when the Antichrist persecutes Israel for three and a half years. And so it uh, works itself, works itself down chapter 12, chapter 13. Wow. Here we have the Antichrist and we've got the 666 mentioned here. Let's see where are we at here. Um, a very scary description of the, the Antichrist. And... Um, this uh, mark on the forehead. Oh yes, we've got the false prophet in verse 11 of chapter 13. So we've got uh, the Antichrist and false prophet introduced here in, these cha in this chapter. And uh, he makes an image and he gives life unto the image here in verse 15. And then he causes everyone to worship this image and whoever doesn't worship it will be killed. Well, there's going to be untold millions of people not worshiping it and they'll be killed. And he causeth all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. This is the mark of the beast, the mark of Antichrist. There's been so much speculation about this. There's been a, way too much speculation as to what it is. A lot of people feel that it's going to be some kind of electronic chip implant so that he can, he can watch and control people from all over the world. Well, I don't think that's what it is, although that, that technology is probably going to happen. It, in fact, it's happening already. People are being chipped. That's a reality right now. 
in the States and over in India, and they're, but they're doing it for economic reasons. A lot of people are getting their money stolen from them. And so the Indian government came up with this idea of chipping for electronic banking purposes. That's why they've done the chipping. Um, is it possible to um, be able to follow people around and control them a bit using chips? Absolutely it is. However, during the tribulation, remember there's going to be a lot of cosmic problems. And I don't think that the satellites are going to run like they're running today. Today they're up there and they're functioning just tickety-boo, but you come to the tribulation, there's going to be such an outpouring of all kinds of problems and dilemmas. I don't think that those those chips are going to really work that well. I don't think that the internet is going to work all that well, uh, at least as you get into the internet, uh, into, into the uh, tribulation. But that's just my thought only on that. However, I think that what it is, it's a sign of allegiance to the Antichrist. That's what he's after, the sign of allegiance. And so the verse 17 says, no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 600, threescore and six. There's the 666. There has been umpteen thousands of different theories as to who that could be. The bottom line is we don't know for sure. Martin Luther in his day was absolutely sure that the Pope of his day was the Antichrist. He was sure of it. He'd stake his life on it. I remember when I was in Bible college, we had a Dr. Howard Chip Chase come and he gave a big uh, series of lectures on Revelation. And back then, Pope John Paul was the popular guy. And uh, Dr. Howard Chip Chase says, this man fits the bill. I think he's the Antichrist. Well, both Chip Chase uh, and uh, Pope John Paul are both gone. <laughs> They're off the planet. And so I don't, I don't think he was right. Truth is, we, we can have our theories and our speculations. And it's a little bit fun to do sometimes. But the bottom line is we don't know. We just don't know. We could all be wrong. We could be surprised. However, I do have my own thoughts. And I don't think I'm wrong. But <laughs> that's what everybody says, right? <laughs> and so we're uh, into chapter 14 now. And... Um, Oh my, we've got uh, another mention of the 144,000. Some say it's a different 144,000 than the first one. Myself, I kind of think it's the same one. I've been studying them both, all of their differences. And I'm familiar with the differences that the different writers point out. But stepping back to look at them and their purpose here, I think it's the same group mentioned again. But again, there's room for differences we are introduced to mystery Babylon here uh, down in uh, verse number eight. Uh, this uh, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city. And there's a lot of question as to, you know, who and what is uh, Babylon. There's more description given later on. Um, we get into chapter 15 and we finish this at verse four. And so this is a, a big uh, parentheses. This is a big parking of the bus off to one side, but it is what it is. Now we get into uh, real time, chapter 15, verses 5 to 8, and we have the seven vials uh, of uh, final judgment. And these things are scary. 
Um, remember I mentioned that they build in their nature and their severity and their scariness. And we started with the seals and the seventh seal opened up the seven trumpets. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And we go through the, the trumpets, the six, five, six, the seventh trumpet opens up the seven vials. So the seventh trumpet is the seven vials and they're introduced here, but these are the final full of the wrath of God. And uh, they're, they're also known as plagues and they come upon the earth. And so we have chapter 16. Now in the last verses of chapter 15, they're introduced, but in chapter 16, we have the seven vials of final destruction. It is absolutely horrific what happens. And you can do a comparison, an interesting comparison between these seven last plagues and the 10 plagues of Egypt that decimated and destroyed Egypt. There's an interesting comparison. Not all 10 uh, plagues are mentioned here, but a good number, the majority of them are. So we have in verse 2, Uh, The first went and poured out his vial upon the earth and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. Now the word noisome means harmful. It doesn't mean noisy as in very loud. It comes from a word noi, which is from annoy to annoy someone or something that's very annoying. The idea is it's very harmful a noisome, a harmful and grievous sore. So, you know, they come upon the bodies of men and still they don't repent. Uh, Verse three is the second vial. The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea and it became as the blood of a dead man. And uh, verse four, and the third angel poured out his, uh, I'm sorry, I, I missed these words. In verse three, and every living soul died in the sea. We're, we're talking catastrophic um, judgments of God. Verse four, and the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of water and they became blood. And right away, verse five, I heard an angel of the waters say, thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be because thou hast judged thus for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink for they're worthy. Interesting. And so we won't take the time to look at all seven of them here, but in verse 13, we have three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. That's Satan out of the mouth of the beast. That's the antichrist and out of the mouth of the false prophet. He's that uh, religious teacher an unholy trinity. And these three frogs were told in verse 14 are the spirits of devils working miracles. And they, uh, which, which go forth unto the Kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle at the great day of God almighty. That's Armageddon. And so we have here the call to Armageddon in uh, chapter 16. We've got more here on the fall of Babylon, which we, um, we're, we're not putting up here in the notes. Now we have another little bit of commentary. Chapter 17 and 18, we have Mystery Babylon and its destruction. And we're told more detail about Babylon 
It's mystery in that it's not the real Babylon. Remember, a mystery is something that's concealed. So this Babylon is not the Babylon over in Iraq. Rome was known as Babylon. In fact, Peter, in one of his epistles, makes mention of being in Babylon. Reference to Rome. So I don't believe that it's Rome either, because that's not a mystery. The mystery Babylon, we don't know what it is. We have our thoughts. We have our suspicions, our speculations. Could it be this country? Could it be this city? You know, there's a lot of speculation about mystery Babylon. But it's Babylon. Uh, It's similar to Babylon in many ways. It's called the great, or the idea is the greatest. It's called the mother of harlots. She started all the false religions, Tower of Babel, that sort of thing. And abominations, dietary abominations, sexual abominations, human sacrifice abominations, things like that. The murder also of God's people, the saints and the prophets. It all, it all falls here into the lap of this, this Babylon. And those two chapters are kind of creepy as you read them through. And how God is just finally at the end of the tribulation, he's just had it. There's stenches reach to heaven. God has given them plenty of time to repent. If you will remember, back in chapter 2 and 3, one of the churches had a woman in it named Jezebel who called herself a prophetess. Remember that? And God said he gave her time to repent. Well, now you have this mystery Babylon and God has given sufficient time for repentance and there's been no repentance. And so now her judgment comes. But her judgment comes like in one hour. It's just incredible. Verse 10. um, At the end it says, For in one hour is thy judgment come. Whatever this mystery Babylon is, I think it's more than a city. I think that it's got to be a bit of a nation. Because all of the merchants of the world are being made rich. Uh, off this nation. This nation has so much wealth, so much power that they buy and they buy and they buy all of the costly, most expensive things and all of the merchants of the world are made very rich off this mystery Babylon. And now in one hour, she's up in smoke. And it's so horrendous that the merchants are beating themselves and casting dust on their head and they're weeping and wailing Because there's no one out there to buy all of their goods. That's what they wanted. But it was this mystery Babylon here that forced the world into the 666. It had a a big hand in it. And so God finally just said, that's it. And uh, essentially wiped them off. And it has become a bit of a a haven for every hateful bird and uh, uh, creepy thing like that. So we get finished. these chapters, and we get to chapter 19. Here we have Armageddon. Armageddon, we have Christ's return. We have the judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Armageddon is uh, this place over in Israel. And I believe that um, this is where the Jews will flee, at least somewhere in this area. And Antichrist, in his pursuit to destroy 
all of the, uh, the Jews is getting all of the world's what's left of them. By the time the end of the tribulation comes, the world's population is going to be dwindled down. You have to understand the actual number of people alive might, might only be 200 million. Right now we have seven and a half billion, but that's going to change. There's going to be a portion that are going to disappear with the rapture, but then there's going to be tremendous bloodshed and death throughout the tribulation time. Population will dwindle. World population will dwindle right down, maybe to a couple hundred million, maybe even less. And then the armies of the world will come in obedience to get rid of the Jews for their own self-survival. Now, interesting thing that Jesus said, that unless those days were shortened, there should be no flesh. Interesting. My guess is that if Jesus did not come back exactly when he comes back, that they'd end up killing each other. Wipe them all out. Maybe with some kind of nuclear weapon or something. The devil would, in order to get the Jews, I think the devil would sacrifice every human being uh, on earth in order to destroy the Jews so that he wins. It's like sacrificing your queen in order to win the game of chess. So it's only a thought, but we've got the final confrontation where they gather together and that's when Jesus comes. And we see that here and see in chapter 19 and uh, uh, where is it here? Verse 11, heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. We spoke of crowns on Sunday morning. Living for Jesus so that we would get a crown. We'll get to lay our crown at his feet. I think he's going to put our crown on his head. That may be why he has many crowns. And he had a name written. Verse 13, he was clothed in a vesture dipped with blood. Verse 14, the armies which were in heaven followed him. Verse 15, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. Uh, we come down to uh, verse 17. An angel is calling all of the, the, the vultures and buzzards and the eagles and falcons and hawks and so on. All the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather yourselves together for the supper of the great God. That ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses. And so on. Verse 19. I saw the beast and the the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So they're coming, I think, to fight the Jews. When Jesus comes, they turn their guns toward Jesus. Verse 20, and the beast was taken. There's the Antichrist with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and then that worshiped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. They bypass the great white throne. There's no judgment there. There's no presenting of the evidence. There's no final condemnation on them. They bypass that and they go right into the lake of fire. And I think the reason is because these are demons inside human bodies at this point. I don't think that the soul, the human is there. When Antichrist dies and comes back to life, I don't think it's the same guy because he's a totally changed man And he's taken here and he's not given a proper day in court. He's just thrown right into the lake of fire. And by the way, Satan is never given a day in court either. 
he's just thrown right into the lake of fire. That comes later. But that's a reason why I believe that the beast and the false prophet essentially are demons in, in human form. How else could they open their mouth and sp- frogs, this, these evil spirits come out? And so uh, the remnant in verse 21, that's all the rest of the unsaved people that are there at Armageddon are slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse. And so then the fowls come and feast on their flesh. So that takes us to the, the end of the seven years. And then just to sort of finish things up, we've got post-tribulation, what happens after the tribulation. And in chapter 20, we have Satan who is bound for a thousand years in a bottomless pit. The people who are alive at the end of the tribulation and the coming of Jesus Christ will be ushered into the thousand year, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. These human beings will have changes in their bodies so that they'll be able to live a thousand years. And the Lord Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. People will still need to get saved. And any open rebellion will be put down instantly. That's the idea of ruling with a rod of iron. Will there be unsaved? There'll be babies born, millions of them. Will any of these be unsaved? Lots of them. Because when Satan is let out at the end of the thousand years, he goes to gather an army. And it says here that when he gathers them, uh, they come together. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, Verse nine. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse eight, the end of verse eight, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. There it is there. Oh yeah. There's going to be a lot of unsaved born in the, um, in the millennial kingdom and they will not get saved. They'll keep their mouths shut. They'll smile, look pretty. They'll, behave, but they're not saved. Does that remind you of today? How that young people can be born and grow up in a church and not be saved. Huh? And then sometimes they go off to college and then all of a sudden they surprise us. They turn around and they, they deny God and they deny Christ and deny salvation. They deny the Bible. What happened? They were never saved. That's what I think we've got exactly right here. And so that's when fire comes down from heaven, barbecues them. The devil, verse 10, is taken, cast directly into the lake of fire, right there where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then you have verse 11, the great white throne. This is the dog's day in court. This is where every unsaved man, woman, or young person will stand before Jesus Christ. And the books will be open and their name will be there. And uh, their sins and all the things they've done, maybe it'll be played out on a big screen. I don't know. But all of the evidence will be there against them. And then a final check will be made, checked in the book of life to see if their name is there. An angel will check, no, Lord, their name is not here. That's all of the evidence, the proof required. They're banished to the lake of fire. That's pretty sad news, the lake of fire. Then we get into chapters 21 and 22. We have the eternal state. We've got new Jerusalem coming down. God will remake heaven and earth. We have at the end of the chapter 22, we have, look at this, an invitation to the unsaved. An invitation to every unsaved man. The spirit say, spirit and the bride say, come and let him that is a thirst come. Take of the water of life freely. There's an invitation for every unsaved man man. And then of course, there's a warning as well, a warning that if any man shall 
um, add to the, under these things, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And then he finishes, you know, even so come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So you have there a little roadmap, if you will, when studying through the book of Revelation. And I want to ask you again to fold that up and tuck it in your Bible and bring it with you on Wednesdays. Our study of the book of Revelation will not take the next 12 months. It'll take a few more months to go through the, the book of Revelation and to show you in more detail these things, which are good things to know. And here's the blessing. Here's, I think, the main blessing. There's probably several, but here's one of the main blessings in studying the book of Revelation is you can't help but get your eyes onto Jesus. You can't help but be constantly reminded, this world is not my home. This world is, is in enmity. <clears throat> I just saw on the news that Hollywood had its big day. They, they, they award themselves with these big awards, right? Hollywood does that every year. And they had this guy named Ricky Gervais. And he's some unsaved, uncouth comedian. And he's not stupid though. And he's basically had it up to here. He's never going to host these things ever again. And he basically laid it out. And publicly, he lambasted the Hollywood industry. Um, he, he didn't use... He didn't call them creeps. He had other words for them. He used some four-letter words and things, some bad language, but he pointed out that it was wicked people and pedophiles who are running the Hollywood industry. And sitting out there is the Hollywood industry. And he said, this is my last time hosting this thing anyhow, so I don't care. And what he did was he pulled the lid off. And Hollywood is a stinking cesspool. It is a, a haven for the most wicked and vicious kind of people. And this, um, this guy who's up on charges now, what's his name again? Wein, Weinstein? Yeah, him, anyhow. And you saw him with the walker going into court trying to make people feel sorry for him. You see the pictures of that? Well, he's an actor. Anyhow, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It is so rotten, so absolutely vile and rotten. And it just gives us a picture of what this wicked world really is. It's horrible, folks. This world is not our home. Your, your home is in heaven. That's where your real estate is. Your retirement plan is in heaven. Our job now is not over. Our job is to live for Jesus. And one day, then we'll have crowns to cast at his feet. Good news. Huh? Let's pray.